Of Gavin Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. I, as ever, am Roscoe Harold Vacant. I'm joined once again by my dear friend and most bodacious of colleagues, Mr. Gil Rokotansky. That's where you say hello, Gil. It's me. Uh, oh, hiya. How's it going, Roscoe? Are you well? I was waiting on your catch. Right, that's cool. And how are you? Yeah, That's and, and oh, happy birthday to you. I, I usually do say how the devil are you, my friend. Um, yeah. But I was going to say, we've all, we're also joined by the host. Contractual obligement. By the host of the podcast Under the Stairs, the show that absolutely everyone is calling T-P-U-T. Yes. <laughs> T-P-U-T. <laughs> Sales. Sales. That was that. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan McLeish, Duncan, how the devil are you, my friend? Are you well? I'm doing really well, thank you very much for having me on, and happy birthday, Roscoe! Thank you very much, thank you. 30 years old. Uh, can't believe it. It's really good to, to finally reach this age. You know, even my twenties, it's a it's a strange, strange situation. Uh, grown up, of course. It must it must be a familiar feeling because your your hairline reached its thirties probably about a decade ago. <laughs> oh dear! So there we go. Yes, it's my thirty third birthday, and same age as our world. Um, <laughs> when he I, died, I don't want to compare our achievements, but. I think history will probably look more kindly on me, to be fair. Um, so, Duncan, what's been happening, man? Is everything well? Everything is well, yeah. Um, you guys left for a while, which meant that temporarily I was bumped up into Scotland's number one horror podcast. Well, I think you were I'm... there already. You were there already, my friend. <laughs> You've come back, and it's kind of it's not my back down a notch, guys. I'm not going to. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm. I'm a wee bit upset you're back. This, that, this game's all about consistency, so you're never going to be beaten by us in that regard. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, we've got access to the numbers. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I got like just just a, a wee bit too giddy when the artwork for the show got changed, and I was like, what does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? And then... And I was like, could it be? And then the show dropped, and I think I might have downloaded it before anyone even posted it, and uh, it was fantastic. I, I had a lot of fun listening to you talk about Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is a movie I thoroughly enjoyed at the cinema. So, Just before we started talking to it, I said to Roscoe, because we'd actually, that was our second run through of that episode, the first one was <laughs> kind of written off. But uh, I said to him, I forgot to mention that I noticed that her car the time says like quarter past 12 and it's pitch black outside and on her phone it says like 6.27pm mm-hmm. and then when she looks at her phone in the bunker it's supposedly a couple of days later so fucking awesome battery for that <laughs> iPhone 
It also says it says like six twenty nine PM and I thought is this gonna be like some sort of massive callback later on in the film? And <laughs> just no. no. <laughs> but then I, But I said to him, oh, I'll need to remember and say that and then I didn't. <laughs> Funnily enough, overall, I land more with Roscoe on the review. I really liked the ending. Well, <laughs> I... fucking get off my podcast. <laughs> hey, what's this? My. <laughs> anyway, yes. That's a shield ownership. If anything, yep. it's a 70 30 split. Um... <laughs> I did ask the baby what she thought of the what ending. Did she, think? she wasn't she that fussed. She said they, they shouldn't have ruined it in the trailer. I'm, I'm reliably advised, following on from a point that Gil made um, last week, uh, that there was a, a kind of... There's an element where we find out that Howard worked in satellites and they worked for a particular company. Well, supposedly, the satellite that crashes at the end of the original Cloverfield, which is supposed to have uh, awoken the monster and, and kind of uh, was made, by, was that made by that company. So that's where the oh. crossover is supposed to be. Apparently there's a lot of what well, at least like that. And there was an, an ARG for 10 Cloverfield Lane that I wasn't even aware of. Oh really? Right. Okay. Oh, well, they, yep. they tended to do that quite quite a lot, and to be to be quite honest, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the stuff with the lost uh, ALG was, um, you know, a bit a bit of a waste of time. To be honest, a lot of it didn't much like the didn't program. Really go anywhere. Ooh. Oh, that's that's a tough one. That's <laughs> that that caught me to the core. And JJ Abrams loves those people sitting in bunkers, doesn't he? <laughs> So, so, Duncan, have you seen anything else that's been exciting this week or anything that you'd like to speak to? Um, I actually caught, last week I caught The Witch. Oh, which wow. Is, okay. Which is this movie that's getting touted as the the movie this year that you've got to see if you're a horror fan. And I know it's kind of, kind of like It Follows and The Babadook the year before. It seems to have polarised horror fans. Some people getting on board and saying mm. it's an excellent movie. Some people just saying, I don't get it. Um, I fall into the camp of people that loved it. I thought it was excellent. Um, your man from the office, I can't remember his name. Uh, he's phenomenal in it. The main actor. Ricky Gervais. <laughs> yeah, he does a dance in the middle. Um, Keith, Keith with the Scotch egg. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> Stephen Merton. <laughs> this is going to tedi- become a tedious game quick for your listeners. Um <laughs> Stephen Merchant had his own sitcom, you know. It was called Hello Ladies. What's that ugly one called? Martin Mackenzie. Mackenzie Crook. <laughs> Mackenzie Crook. Is it him? No. Oh, God. Who from The Office? I can't Lucy, Lucy Davis, Jasper <laughs> Carrot's daughter. Oh, the movie would have been so much better if Jasper Carrot was in it. Um, no, I, I genuinely thought it was phenomenal. It's more of a... It's more of a drama, I would say, than a horror. It, it certainly has kind of layers of tension that are built up through it. But just the attention to detail and the way it's shot is just phenomenal. Um, I think it has a really good message as well, considering it's come out from a first-time director. Um, I, I genuinely thought it was phenomenal. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year, behind uh, the Ben Wheatley movie High Rise, which is phenomenal. So I highly recommend that if you've not seen it. I know you do quite like a Mr... Mr. Wheatley's stuff, so uh, that's one I would recommend you check out. Yeah. Very cool. Where did you see that? I one? wanted to go. 
He went to the ah, GFT. Okay. I wanted to go to that, and Ben Wheatley turned up for yeah, the Q&A. Yeah, I asked, I asked him a question. I didn't go to because of Napal. I asked him a question. I asked him two questions, and he kind of dismissed the first one. And I was like, oh, don't I feel like a bit of a prick? Um, and then he answered the second one, and I didn't realise that if you asked him a question, you got a high-rise T-shirt, which I thought was great. And then he gave me a medium, which I will never get into, ever. <laughs> like even on even on my skinniest day, even if I go on a hun- hunger strike, I will never get into this T-shirt. Uh, but it was cool. It was a great movie, and it was it was funny just listening to, to him just talk about the movie experience and where he's going next. His next movies are set in America, and I think it involves IRA. So um, it's called Sons of Anarchy. So yeah, he did the whole third season. Um, so no, it, it looks it looks really it looks really good as well. So, uh, uh, I mean, huge cast for High Rise. Um, brilliant. Oh, Ralph Innocent, that's the guy from, from the, the office. office. He's brilliant, by the way. He's excellent in it. And from uh, Harry Potter as well, apparently. Yeah. And Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. <laughs> I could have picked anything more modern. He's with cleft jaw. I just imagine a. If anything, he's probably in the office least. <laughs> there we go. Um, he's the northern guy in the office. Yes. But if I'd gone to see Ben Wheatley and he did a Q and A, I would have. My obvious question would have been, "Can you tell me what's happening with the ideal movie?" Because he's down to be directing. Because he directed an entire series of Ideal as well. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Hmm. So High Rise has got a uh, Tam Hiddleston. Yeah, big Tam. Big Tam. <laughs> Jezza, Jezza Islands. Yes, big Jezza's up there. Uh-huh. Uh, I saw him in the post office the other day. Senga Miller as well. <laughs> hey, I actually, I quite like Senga Miller. Yes, yeah, she's, she's, she's good She's in great in the interview with Steve Buscemi. <laughs> we usually, yeah. we're, we're laughing about our pronunciation, but usually this is, this is usually what we do. <laughs> We just murder people's vo- people's names. I'm not very good at the, the names either, I'm afraid. No. My favourite one of Roscoe's was uh, Vincent Donofrio. Donofrio? Donofrio? Yeah. Well, there we go. To be fair, it was his first appearance in anything, so how were you to know? What was it? I was talking about him in Stuck on You, the, the 1970s <laughs> sex comedy, so in fairness... I was there looking at the broad spectrum of this guy's career. <laughs> Is that a fat joke, just because he's private pile? No, no, it was not. And did you know that Ralph Innocent is a supporter of Leeds United Football Club? That is a fascinating fact. People come here for the facts. Right, so, guys, this... Guys, 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 I'm looking for a good time. Um, um... Was it the cinema that you saw The Witch in, Duncan? Yes, it was. Because uh, if it was an illegal download, I was going to ask if you could burn The Witch for me. <laughs> ah, excellent. Very good. So, Gil, have you seen anything exciting this week that you would like to speak to? Uh, yeah, I've seen this programme on Baby TV. Uh-huh. I, I don't know if Duncan's familiar with that particular channel. I've <laughs> never seen heard of it, no. Sky Channel Six Two Three, <laughs> where there's a there's a program where it's it sounds like Harry Hill is singing a song, <laughs> and it always makes me think of Roscoe. Oh, 
That's nice. <laughs> you know, Harry Hill was my favourite comedian in the 1990s, and oh, you could imagine my delight when at Christmas the VHS for Man Alive came out, and I was very excited. You know, my chums at school were very excited to get this video. To my absolute horror, that started with a short story about the boy with the big face. <laughs> so me and all my friends coming back for school holiday, it's the boy with the big face. And there it was. Harry Hill had been the author of my demise. <laughs> See, I don't think you have a particularly large face. Well, everyone, everyone at school thought that I did. So there we go. But I remember you took offence one time when you came round and you asked me what I was watching. And I said, it's Moon Boy. Yes, that was another one. Because you didn't know that was the name of an actual program. <laughs> yeah, but I was at university, I was Harry McSquarey. <laughs> <laughs> I must have seen something this week that wasn't an Eli Roth film. Yeah, I saw Drew Zootropolis. Oh, how was that? Uh, it was very good. Very good fun. Um... I saw Batman vs Superman. <laughs> Did you honestly? Yeah. What was it like? Uh, I can see why it's polarised people. Uh-huh. Because it's Henry Cavill's Superman that is very difficult to give any sort of fuck about. Okay. And uh, Batfleck is... <laughs> he's, he's like the the Batman from the Arkham Knight game. Right, okay. Driving about in the Batmobile from the Arkham Knight game. So actually, it's it's not too bad. It's full of plot holes. It's quite disappointing. The <laughs> the bit where it gets to the end and you've got Doomsday, it's a little bit like you're watching the test footage for Abomination from The Incredible Hulk. Because... Doomsday just doesn't look that great. Right, okay. Uh-huh. But so is Doomsday the big bad in this or uh no. <laughs> That's the problem with the film is there isn't really a big bad. There's a lot of it really is just building towards why's Lex Luthor got hair? He should be bald. Oh well, let's try and get him bald by the end of the film. Oh no way, really! Like, oh, why are Superman and Batman not friends? They should be friends. Oh, let's try and get them. I mean, you've probably seen the there's a picture that's been shared all over Facebook where it's <laughs> it's two of them high fiving, going, "Your name's Martha. Your mum's called Martha. My mum's called Martha. Best friends forever." <laughs> that is that. I am not lying. That does happen in the film. Oh. That's not much of a spoiler, but. They they do have a moment where the fact that they both have mums with the same yeah. name does kind of um, ruin the kind of tension that was being built by the trailers when the end of the trailers has Batman and Superman teaming up along with <laughs> Wonder Woman. <laughs> it's just like, who will survive and what will be left of them? And no, they're probably going to be friends by the end. <laughs> the big battle at the end is such a kind of annoyingly stupid CGI fest but characters kind of duck out of it <laughs> right. and go and have like a wee extra like oh Lois Lane's just over there I'd better run over and check her out and see what she's doing 
Okay, so is it and is it like kind of Iron Man three levels of CGI nonsense? Uh, no, because Iron Man three is ju- that should just never be made. Because uh, you know, I wholly disagree with that. If you're going to bring up oh, Ben on. Kingsley, he's... then that's just like a nonsense. <laughs> no, I was going to bring up the fact that he's got like a kind of automatic drone robot army that. Oh, yeah, you know, he nice. then says, oh, I'm going to get rid of the automatic drone robot army, and then they kickstart Age of Ultron with him and his even larger fucking automatic robot army. Yeah, he's not learned a lot of lessons. He hasn't. It's the boy Stark. He'd better watch out, because Captain America might get a wee bit grumpy. Are we excited about Civil War? I mean, I've, well, I've been seeing it happening for a couple of years, but, you know, eventually we will get the Tories out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there we go. And I did read a great article today about how when the Queen dies, the monarchy will actually just become... It'll be like the the continuation of a TV series that some people liked, but when you replace the lead character, they start going... <laughs> You know, it's, it's going to be like two and a half men after Charlie Sheen went mental. <laughs> well, they go, oh, I, I quite like Ashton Kutcher in some things. And they go, oh, let's just wind it up. <laughs> Nobody cares. And the Queen doesn't come back for a cameo at the end. I wholly disagree. I think it's going to be like season two and three of Game On. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. <laughs> Oh, I loved Game On. I loved it so much that I became an agrophobe. <laughs> <laughs> then joined the band. And I did used to kind of be like that on stage. Every once in a while we'd be like, oh God, I'm having a panic attack. I better just drink. <laughs> I did a gig somewhere in England where I had a broken ankle and I had somebody from one of the other bands on standby at the bar. And if I kind of winced and waved at him, then he was to bring me a tequila. <laughs> <laughs> Halfway through our last song, somebody set off the fire alarm. And we didn't notice because the backing track for that track was filled with siren effects. <laughs> <laughs> we were from the bar, came up, tapped me on the shoulder. I actually just walked up on the stage, tapped me on the shoulder, my fire alarm's going off. <laughs> All right. So that's probably a little bit too much shenanigans for for one episode. The reason we're here today is to discuss the life and work of one Eli Roth, or certainly three films uh, that are related to his legacy. So those films are his most recent movies. So that would be The Green Inferno and Knock Knock. We're also going to discuss the film that Knock Knock is based on. Boom chicka wow! <laughs> Boom chicka wow! The Seducers. It's, uh, or Death Game. Or Death Game. Depending on which sleazy cinema you go to. <laughs> to, to see it. I think if you went to a sleazy cinema to watch it, you'd be a wee bit You'd be a wee bit disappointed, but it is a little bit harder for YouTube, I would suggest. <laughs> What channels do you subscribe to on YouTube? (laughs) Yes, so on that note, um, we shall have a short break there and we'll be back after this. 
Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Okay, guys, and we're back to discuss Knock Knock uh, slash the seducers and Death Game. Um, so, this is a 2015 film. It was directed by Eli Roth and written by Eli Roth with Nicholas Lopez and Guillermo Amedo. Um, this uh, was released without a press screening um, and you can watch quite interesting video on Mark Kermode talking about uh, the pros and cons of doing that um, and basically he kind of had the view that there wasn't really a reason why it wasn't like it was so bad that, that, that a press screening would have particularly harmed the film um, so this film is essentially a subversion of home invasion type films um, when the devoted husband and father is left home alone for the weekend two stranded young women unexpectedly knock on his door for help what start out as a, starts out as a kind gesture results in a dangerous seduction and a deadly game of cat and mouse so these um, very uh, attractive young women turn up at uh, the door of our lead character, Evan. Um, Their names are Genesis and Belle, and they are looking for a party at the Gregory's house that they believe to be in this neighbourhood that they think is, they think the party is in in Evan's uh, home. Evan is played by Keanu Reeves. Um, Genesis is played by Lorenzo Izzo, and uh, Belle is played by Anna de Armas. Um, and basically they get Auntie's house and um, he invites them into their home because it's raining, they're soaking wet and they're trying to phone a taxi basically to get uh, to get to the party that they are uh, meant to be going to. As the thing on the thing unfolds, they they become more and more kind of flirty and kind of get in around his personal space and start uh, kind of taking off their clothes and start kind of just uh, being a bit wild around the house and so on. And um, Well, to be fair, he did tell them to take their clothes off because he was going to dry them for them. Yeah, okay. He was being a good guy there because he's a, he's a nice man to them. He welcomes them in, says, I'll dry your clothes and gives them nice dressing gowns. Yeah, so that's that's basically where we start off with. Um, and as the thing progresses, he uh, shows them kindness, but they uh, these these girls end up starting fooling around in the shower and start to encourage him to come in and, and have sex with them. 
um, as things kind of unfold, he is very much, no, I'm a family man, and a, a big part of this film is the emphasis on this person being a family man. The first sequence, for example, uh, starts off with a kind of very long tracking shot um, that takes you uh, along from the Hollywood Hills along to this <clears throat> this kind of mansion-sized house, or certainly upper-middle-class-sized house uh, in the suburbs, where you've got two really nice cars parked outside, and um, as, as the thing progresses, this tracking shot just shows you all the way around his house. We get pictures of his kids, we get pictures of him and the kids, and pictures of um, just the life that they've built up uh, over the years. And that's very much the the focus, and the end of that sequence is just a closed uh, bedroom door, um, and that takes us into <clears throat> the first sequence of the film where Evan and his wife are in bed, and you know just uh, having a kind of lazy uh, Sunday morning kind of fool around kind of thing, um, and. Yeah, so that, that's kind of where we start and we get this picture of Evan as very much being a family man until uh, this until uh, this kind of incident happens. And he, it's also Father's Day. It's Father's Day, absolutely. And basically he commits adultery with these two young women. Um, and once that's over, he wakes up in the morning, discovers they're still there, they're kicking her in his house, making a mess and blah, blah, blah. And at this point, they tell him that they are both under the age of consent and that if he phones the police to try and get them out of his house, then he's going to be labelled as a paedophile and he's going to be put through the courts and blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's, you know, the, the the whole nine yards, they give, they give it to him and lay it on pretty thick that he's going to be, um, he's going to be... Uh, he's going to be put through, you know, he's going to be arrested and so on. Um, so yeah, the... and they're, they're watching a, sorry, they're watching a thing called family feud whilst they're making all the mess in the morning. Ah. And then at one point when they're torturing him, they recreate family feud by asking him questions. Ah, yes, of course. Uh-huh. So yeah. So as the, as the thing goes on, it just becomes more and more intense um, and as Evan tries to escape and tries to um, tries to get rid of these girls, he eventually gets them to agree to leave the house and he drives them to a neighbourhood um, a few miles away and drops them off. But they come back under the cover of darkness and knock him out, tie him to the bed, and basically from here it just gets insanely messed up and we get this kind of psychosexual drama playing out where we've got this one girl who, uh, Belle, who clearly has a whole lot of different issues. Um, and yeah, so that's that's basically the, the, the plot from there. It kind of starts from there and we just get this kind of morality tale of, well, you know, he obviously wants to make this go away. He wants to have the family life, but he also wants to... Um, he, you know, wants to basically get rid of any evidence that this happened, but these girls are not, uh, you know, are not, are not prepared to let him do that. In terms of the kind of the message behind this, 
what do you think it was actually saying? I mean, what's, what's your view on this film? What do you think it was actually trying to say? Because I, I could not get a handle on this one at all in terms of what its overlying message was. Yeah, I, I had no idea what this film was trying to say because the two girls who say that they're 15, it turns out that they're both in their 20s. And, well, they're both played by actresses who are, like, 26, 27. Evan, they tell him that he looks really good for a 43-year-old. Keanu Reeves is 51. So, I mean, if they just let him use his real age, Mm -hmm. then they'd probably be making an even better point. (laughs) Apart from the fact he can't grow a beard, can he? Mm -hmm. He's very patchy, like his acting. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I mean... Uh, to be honest, I felt quite uncomfortable during this film because there's quite a lot in it that's very close to the bone and without good reason. Um, you know, you, mm. you see films that are you know very serious and make a you know make great points about you know child sexual exploitation or about um, you know about rape and about the the kind these kind of politics that and these kind of issues and the politics psychological the, abuse the, uh, absolutely and- all those issues that 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 are very very serious and that impact on a whole lot of people all the time. Um, this this film seemed to to be honest, to kind of make light of those things. And it seemed to kind of insinuate certain things. Like, for example, that Bell has got this really damaged background, but yet everything is still quite light-hearted and fun all the way through. Um, so it's a, a very... T- and again, the ending um, very much just shows... Just felt like, you know, a crummy... Uh, you know, no, no, that creep show is crummy, but it felt like a kind of cre- <laughs> a creep show esque or tales from the crypt esque uh, joke, um, and and again used a, a nice panning shot at the end, which was again really great. And I mean, the you you can't not argue with the cinematography in this; it was great, but you can't argue with whatever's at the back of it because I I just. I don't know where his where his sexual politics are. I watched some interviews from this. Um, it's quite interesting, just the kind of the 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 way that he was talking about the the main characters, and it was almost like you know he's, he's saying things like, "Oh, you know, you can't tell because like you know we we used to, we went onto these girls' Instagrams, and it's like uh, you you couldn't tell if they were over fifteen or not." It's just like. This is not, you know, this is not what you should be making a film about. This is not a major issue that you need to be addressing and that you need to be using your vast wealth um, that, that to, to, to basically say that girls uh, are leading men on. It's This is not, you know, not a kind of... Uh, to, to, to me, it's, it's, it's just such a troubling film, the way that it's presented. The way that it's presented is um, concerning. I don't know if you guys felt the same. I did, yeah. I I, I saw this movie mm. at the cinema um, when it came out, and I was thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly disappointed with it because, like you say, it starts off like that. That opening shot, especially, I, I thought this feels like a mature movie. Just the way the, the way it was shot, and even even the first maybe twenty thirty minutes of the movie, I kind of felt like. Eli Roth had not, you know, I had Green Inferno wasn't out by this point, so I kind of thought he'd done, you know, he'd been away for a while, come back and he'd maybe grown up a little bit. Um, 
And as the movie continued on, the kind of sexual politics you're talking about, that's the bit that really, I started to find myself really concerned by that. And I don't think, I think Eli Roth, as a director, um, you know, he's obviously grown up, he's got a, 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 an archival knowledge of, of horror movies um, and directors and all the rest, but I don't necessarily think he has a voice. I think he just tends to try and put forward what he thinks his ideas for the homages to the movies that he loved when he was younger. I think he tries to put his own stamp on it, but I just don't think he knows mm. how to do that. And as a result, what you get is just... A mess. Yeah, pretty much. I think that this movie is, is frustrating, to say the least, because I genuinely thought when it was announced that he was doing this movie and I'd seen Death Game before and I, I they were kind of trying to not make light of the fact that it was a remake and the build-up towards the movie and I kind of expected it to be like Death Game, which we'll get on to is, you know, is a movie very much of its time, but I, I genuinely don't know what he wanted to do in this movie. There's a lot of things in it which, to me, are quite concerning messages in 2015. Um, and it's just, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a mess. I, I, I don't think Eli Roth has it in him to be able to put forward the sort of message that he held in a movie like Hostel, for example, which did have a kind of a kind of social political statement to make about, you know, Americans and how the rest of the world sees America and, and vice versa. Um, I, I just don't know where he was going with this one at all. And it really... It plays light of certain messages which I I don't think you should be doing, and especially now. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. It just it was really quite worrying, and the ending, like when we, because this has like a there's a there's a scene after obviously like an extended ending, and that to me was the kind of final slap in the face for me, where I was like, so all the way through the movie, we are made to try and feel sorry for this poor man, this poor family man in his very, very nice house, who, you know, all he wanted to do was help these two girls who he sleeps with, um, even though he's a family man. Um, and he got some free pizza, he goes, as he says. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of this movie, and I don't want to obviously spoil it for anyone as in see it, but there's a particular transformation at the very, very end of this movie, which I just thought, uh, why is that there? Has this character even learned his lesson? No, he's become more of a dick. So, is that the the gloves the extended yeah, scene the, that you're yeah, talking the, about? Where the gloves he... at the very end. Wait, I think we probably can spoil this because you can't. There's not really much that you can't spoil about a home invasion film and what we've said happens in it. And since we're going to talk about death game anyway. Mm-hmm it's probably just fair game to, to spoil this. And basically the two of them leave him buried in his garden up to his neck with a phone in front of him with a, a video that they've filmed of him having sex with one of them. I think it was Belle. It was Belle, yeah. Yeah, it's the video where she's raping him though, so it's it's not exactly... Because yeah. he's tied down, so it's not exactly... As if it's a you know, consensual video either, so... And she's just spent the previous couple of minutes calling him daddy and punching him. Mm-hmm. But then they've probably edited that bit out. 
of the video and they've shared it on what I assume is meant to be some sort of Facebook. But this shows how clumsy this film is that Eli Roth thinks that if somebody shares a video of you having sex with them on your Facebook page and has that on a phone directly in front of your face while you're buried in the ground, like up to your neck, that you can get your arm out and the the two things that you'll be looking at are one button that says like and one that says delete. Like anyone that's ever shared anything on any sort of social media will know that that's not a possibility, but they make it look like he accidentally clicks like on this video, then gets out. Again, I think that was a fairly minor, I mean, that, that whole thing about clicking like. But not that, the, the scene that comes after it, the... I don't think I've seen the, the extended. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah well, I, he, I, yeah, he goes to the house. Yeah, he, he, he tracks them down. Um, finds them at their next house where they're torturing a victim. He puts on black gloves and then knocks on the door, insinuating that he's basically going to go and kill them. And to me, that's fucky lie rot. <laughs> well, to be to be honest, I hated the the ending as it was. You yeah. know, I thought that was bad enough. Um, but yeah, that's pretty poor. Um, I mean, it just felt like you know, just it's like Ted dancing up to his neck and creep show or whatever. Yeah. Just like, yeah. just point. You know, it's funny in that context, the EC Comics context, but that this is not a comedic subject. It's a mm-hmm. serious subject. And it's, um, as, as you say, Duncan, it's very kind of, very concerning messages in this this kind of day and age. And I mean, think, thinking of films that have done it a lot better or have done some more stuff, um, if you think about like Hard Candy Hand or... Up. Yeah, that's the one I thought about, certainly. Uh, any yeah. number of kind of good kind of revenge films. I mean, this the, the thing about Eli Roth is that he obviously knows his stuff and he obviously is a huge fan of a particular genre and a particular period in cinematic history, a type of exploitation film, um, and he wants to replicate that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when when you look at that and you compare that to the likes of, and I'm not saying, you know, Ty West has fell out of favour of me as well, don't get me wrong, but you compare the way that Ty West has, has kind of uh, taken something like House of the Devil or Inkeepers um, and, and took those influences, took the kind of 80s slasher or based on a true story influences and transposed those uh, into a modern context. Ty West yeah. has tried to do that. Mm-hmm. But he's he's still there seems to be a level of maturity in the work that he does. Um and I'm not saying, you know, that I'm any any more mature or that there's it's just that there seems You are, you're thirty three. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um but yeah, there's there is just that level of maturity that goes through everything, that kind of sniggering uh, stupidity that and it's all it's the kind of worst elements of trauma. And he's obviously a trauma alumnus as well, um, along with James Gunn. Um, but I think with, with something like that, we're, we're working in that kind of context. You take the good bits and you move on for the frat boy stuff. Yeah. Whereas uh, I don't think I don't think Eli Roth has really moved on as much as he's. he's he probably thinks this is targeting. You know, this is this is far more serious movie. And mm-hmm. I mean, in the interviews, he's he's made the point that you know. Green Inferno is is a, a kind of slasher film, but this is this is more of a um, 
this is more of a visceral kind of a psychological movie and that this is where you don't really see a single drop of blood and blah 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 um but he also didn't pay much credit to the original source material in those interviews. In the interviews, he seems to he seems to he mentions the film, but he does not say this is a remake of. Yeah, but he he does say that he was influenced. He wanted to make a Roman Polanski film. Oh. Now, do, do you know? Well, well, there you go. <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, I'm just saying. Like, I I actually I found a different podcast where they talk about this, and they actually had interviews with some of the people that were involved in Death Game. Ah. Which was quite interesting. Projection Booth uh-huh. did a, a, a three-hour-long episode. I haven't heard it all. I've just heard bits and pieces. Uh-huh. But they interviewed a couple of the people. But one of the guests that they had on it was a professor. And when they were talking about this film, one of the things that they they found most confusing is that during all the press for Knock Knock... Uh-huh. Death Game was very much in the background and it's not even like when somebody remakes a film the film is usually somewhere in there or the writers of that film are mm-hmm. mentioned as based on a story by and everything that's not there at all uh-huh. so I know that for, for one thing that's kind of interesting is that Sandra Locke and Colleen Camp were both uh, executive producers on this. Yeah, did you know that? Uh huh. The yeah, and Colleen Camp is well. Obviously, she's the only one that has a tiny part uh-huh. in it. But that's because they were unhappy with Death Game. Oh really? Which, right. Okay. Yeah, I'll. I've read up quite a bit on Death Game since watching because it was the first time I'd seen it and I thought that the the differences in so many things between Knock Knock and Death Game mm-hmm. were quite big. So mm-hmm. I read a couple of articles that were that are very interesting, but it seems to me that they really didn't like Death Game. But I I thought that Death Game out of the two films actually is the far superior. Yeah, but I think that's because of Eli Roth's handling, okay. which. You know, I I've really just got fed up with Eli Roth because it seems like everything that he does, even if something looks like a homage now, it probably is just a remake. Uh-huh. And I mean, obviously, the one that we talked about, I know that Eli Roth only served as a producer, but we can certainly see his influence on it is uh, Ty West. Clown. Well, I was going to say Ty West, very disappointing um, sacrament. Oh, yeah. um, which was a, a real disappointment for me because I, I felt I was really looking forward to a good, well-made modern retelling of Jonestown, perhaps with a little twist, perhaps with something a little bit different, perhaps you know telling a different element of the story. Um, but it was basically again a you know a, a remake of the TV movie that was made and it was, a, you know, the, the, the kind of different exploitation films and obviously Life and Death in the People's Temple, which I, I think is, you know, legitimately a phenomenal piece of work um, that people should should obviously check out. I always put that across, but it's just a, the kind of film, documentary film about Jonestown that far, sur- you know, far surpasses um, the kind of, again frat boy retelling of uh, a very serious tragedy. Um, 
you know. But there, there. That's just my uh, my two cents and that. But you were going to say about clown girl. Yeah, clown. That was another uh, one that that got out there because of the Eli Roth name attached to it, wasn't it? Oh, uh-huh. so that one, that one, and American Mary, which I, I liked. American Mary. Uh huh. But clown had its moments. Yeah, I, I, I thought clown was okay. I I, 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 I quite enjoyed it when I watched it. I, um, when I watched it the second time, not so much. I think um, I was just quite psyched to see a. A horror movie with a clown. <laughs> um, and when I watched it the second time, I was like, ah, it's, it, it, it's all right. I didn't, but I mean, his involvement on that project is purely as a, a financier on it. Ah, right. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it, the, the, that movie only got made because a couple of kids did a fake trailer for the movie they wanted to yeah. make and said from producer Eli Roth, and he saw it and he financed it after that. Um, so, But there could be a contract where uh, his... Deeper involvement is not to be mentioned. I could, it could very well be. He's, well, he has been. He's been involved with. It, it does. Uh, his name goes on quite a lot of movies, um, and none of them tend to be the greatest cinematic experiences. Let's no. put it that way. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like a Steven Spielberg directed joint poltergeist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that one. Yeah. That's the old rumor that. Um, yeah, Steven Spielberg. There's a lot of people from that set that say the Toby Hooper was not involved. Toby Hooper was was either not there or pissed at the time. Yeah, he was up to up to his uh, he's up to his nostrils and cocaine. Allegedly, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> allegedly. Thank you, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Everything we say on this podcast is allegedly. Though. Uh, allegedly, Eli Roth directed not, it's not. For, for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> Do not swallow. Yeah. But did this film kind of ruin it for you a little bit when the the Louis character turned up? No, I, I quite like that. I, I thought there was a, a wee bit of a spoiler for people that haven't seen it, but it's... The, well, the, the, you have no the ending. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that you've got this character who turns up and he's he seems like he's, he's playing it quite geeky. Uh-huh. You know, he's... Uh, Kind of big, stocky black guy being a bit geeky. It was a wee bit just kind of timid. Uh-huh. I quite like And this then all of a sudden he, he becomes gangster. Then he bought I'm from Oakland, bitch. And then two minutes later he's dead of a fucking asthma attack and just trip on a tiny stone. I thought that was quite fun. That was that would have been more fun if he hadn't gone. I'm from Oakland, bitch. Yeah, I like that. What I did like... you think of Keanu Reeves in the film? I thought he was murder. I th- yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. I genuinely don't understand the casting of that at all, other than to get Keanu Reeves, who is obviously a recognisable name in your movie. I I, I don't understand it. I, I've, he's not he's not the greatest in motor. Um, of, um, of anything, and kind of put whoa, to, dude, to put him in a movie where he basically has to to weigh up quite a lot emotionally and psychologically. Um, maybe not the best <laughs> actor, not may, the best can't actor. escape <laughs> from a chair. There may have been some slightly better hands, yeah, uh, available, <laughs> especially considering the John Wick came out last year as well and also starts with a home invasion <laughs> and he kills everyone 
Uh, what you don't know is that end scene where he's putting the gloves on. That's the start. Of John that's, Wick. The, that's the start of John yeah. Wick. Yeah, <laughs> not, not the prequel. <laughs> so, so death game. Well, can I quickly move on to that? Um, death game is obviously as we've we've alluded to uh, the film that was uh, very much an influence on this. If <laughs> it's, it's pretty much an exact. Um, well. Uh, it's, it's it's very very close to being a a, a remake of that. I think if uh, I think uh, and if it was challenged in a court of law, you would probably <laughs> you would probably find it was a it was a remake. Um, well, if you if you look on the wiki page for Death Game, it says Knock Knock's a remake, and if you look on the wiki page for Knock Knock, it says it's a remake of Death Game. Uh-huh. And same for the IMDb pages and everything. Like everywhere, it is acknowledged that these two films are the same film, apart from in Eli Ross' shitty film. But I mean, in fairness, they were they, when they turn up at the door, they do say, "Look, we're here to see the Gregories," which is the same and uh, same as an mm-hmm. um, as a oh, knock yeah, knock. So I mean, there's elements there that that made me think that it was a direct um, a direct. Uh, remake, but it's just in the promotional stuff. It wasn't quite as as front and center as as one would anticipate. So um, the synopsis is: two young girls come to the home of a businessman whose family is away on his birthday. They seduce him, and afterwards they tie him up, torture him, and trash his house. Sounds familiar. Does sound familiar. <laughs> what do you think, Duncan? Have you? I may have seen this movie before. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah, it Starkiano Reeves? And they also get made up and do <laughs> go through the the house and and that side of things. That that is one other reference actually is the makeup. Yeah, yeah. The the it's the eyeshadow of, uh, oh, Genesis. Uh-huh. It's the same as the eyeshadow of. Donna. Jack, Donna, Donna and Jackson. Yep. The two girls in it. Yep. Um, I did take notes somewhere because I'm a professional. <laughs> it was... Uh, which is uh, Sandra Locke as Agatha Jackson. I'm sorry, oh. Miss Jackson. But I am so- <laughs> I, I thought the most interesting thing about watching Death Game was that it completely... Like I, over the past ten years, I've been losing little bits. Like the the respect that I've that I had for Clint Eastwood growing up has been slowly chipped away at. <laughs> In the same way that I am a, I will, I could watch Planet of the Apes every day and be perfectly happy. But Charlton Heston, for the past like thirty years, just know what a horrible, horrible man. Mm-hmm. That, I'm not going to say anything nasty about him now that he's dead. I just think that he was a really horrible, stupid man. But then he became well known for standing up and making idiotic political rants. And then, of course, we had, <laughs> we had Clint Eastwood a couple of years ago having a conversation with a fucking empty chair. That's one of the greatest things that's ever happened. Uh-huh. But the most interesting thing that happened with this is that I I've pretty much lost all respect for Clint Eastwood just through his like entire relationship with Sandra Locke because mm-hmm. mm. uh, they were I mean everybody if people don't know who Sandra Locke is just look at uh, 
Bronco Billy and the Any Which Way films, uh, Outlaw Josie Wales, uh, Sudden Impact, and there's probably another one, but I'm too lazy to click the page. <laughs> Just click the page. <laughs> Gone clip. Right, so right, they they were a, a filmmaking duo mm-hmm. for quite a few years, and they were a romantic duo. And he ruined her. Yeah, really? Like he, yeah, they were. He he'd said to her that he didn't want to have kids because that would that would kind of ruin things. She had two abortions due to that, and then later on discovered that whilst they were in a relationship, he had two kids with somebody yeah, else anyway. Father two kids with someone else. Yep. Then uh, because she'd threatened to sue him over something, he, he did a deal with Warners where she was going to, she wanted to get into directing, so he did a deal where she would be a director at Warners and paid. For that, it turns out the Warners would pay her, and then Clint Eastwood would pay Warners the money that was going to her. Mm-hmm. And every film that she took to Warners, they said no to, and they never offered her any of the films that they had. So she was basically a paid director who wasn't allowed to do anything. And it turned out that that was all down to Clint Eastwood. My goodness. And there's like several lawsuits about it. Clint Eastwood ended up settling out of court. She also sued, sued Warner Bros, who then also settled out of court. Yes. And that went on for a long, long time. So, yeah. Is she, Clint Eastwood. Is she still around? Oh, she's still around. Huh. Sadly, Clint Eastwood is also <laughs> still around. <laughs> He's probably screwing up someone else's career. But yeah, that's. I mean, she she did direct a few films in the eighties, one of which I did see that people should check out. Rat Boy. What's Rat Boy? Well, that would be kind of giving the game away, wouldn't it? <laughs> you, are you not intrigued enough to watch a film called? I'm Rat quite Boy? intrigued. That, uh, it puts me in mind of the Weekly World News from the nineties when there was Bat Boy left <laughs> in the cave. Do you remember him? It was like every every week there was. Bat, well, Bat Child Escapes. And I I, to... There's a musical. There is a musical. Really? And I I shit you not, I have seen the musical <laughs> in London's West End. <laughs> and I have... West a, End, right? I have a Bat Boy the Musical cut. <laughs> oh, sorry, a mug. And on one side of it, it says Bat Boy the Musical. And on the other side, it has one of the the best lines from the film, which is just, don't talk like a slut, Shelley. <laughs> It's a very, very good musical. People should check it out. There's some really, really good... I If if Rocky Horror was on one place and Bat Boy was on the other, I'd be telling everybody, go and see Bat Boy, because it's, it's funny, and it's just as daft and campy and everything. And the, the Bat Boy character, the person that I saw playing Bat Boy was the person who had also played it when it had a short run on Broadway. Oh my goodness, there we go. And it was, well, it may have been off-Broadway, which maybe means, like, California, somewhere <laughs> in a shed. Yes. But you can actually, if you go onto YouTube, the, the soundtrack album is up there, but, um, of course, you 
you miss out all the fantastic talking. <laughs> but that's not what you go to a musical for, is it? Okay, so Knock Knock and Death Game. So Death Game, what would you say? You mentioned, Gil, earlier that you felt that Death Game was was leagues above uh, Knock Knock. I'm not quite so sure that there's, there's quite so much in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the... Death Game is an incredibly interesting film. Incre- because... Incredibly interesting? So slightly interesting. <laughs> oh, for the background. Like, see the the main actor in Death Game? Uh-huh. Uh, what's he? Seymour Castle. Uh-huh. Who plays George Manning. Basically, it's the exact same story in this, but they don't kill... The assistant who's from Auckland, the the killer delivery boy, the guy that plays George, disliked the director and thought the director was so piss poor and getting the script so wrong that at one point, the scene where they have him tied up and they're throwing food at him, mm-hmm. apparently they took a long time shooting that. And as soon as he was untied, he tried to deck the director. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and then refused to go back to do the audio replacement. Oh, really? So, My goodness. So that's not his voice in the oh, film. Oh, yeah, he's, he, he's, he's prayed, yeah. <laughs> yeah. dubbed in this movie. That's actually the the voice of, I think it might be the editor. <laughs> or it's, it's the cinematographer. Who was also the editor? Yep, David Worth. Actually, that's his voice, which makes it kind of odd if you listen to the Projection Booth podcast because they have David Worth on it, and you're like, "Oh, that's that's not Seymour Castle. That's David Worth's voice all the way through the film." Again, and again, just getting, <laughs> getting back to it a wee bit. Did you not feel that there was an element of? the same kind of misogyny, like absolutely <laughs> rampant throughout this film. Um, well, there there is, but that's because they, they said that the script had been treated incredibly wrong. Okay. I mean, look at the theme song. Oh, yeah, God, that's <laughs> awful. I have that song stuck in my head every once in a while now, so the, just because it's so annoyingly catchy, so, but you shouldn't have an annoyingly catchy song like that so could we, in a film like could this. Could we quickly throw in a few seconds of the theme tune so that people can get a wee, a wee feel for that? So this, uh, we will. this film about uh, sexual violence uh, is <laughs> uh, accompanied by this theme song. Let's hear it. Who's the man who made me what I am today? Who's the man who taught me what to do and what to say? Who gave me the things in life that he never had? My good old dad. Um, so, yes. So that's pretty awful. Exactly. <laughs> and it comes in a couple of times. But yeah, this, this film, I have to say, is more tasteful in the sense that the elements where the, the the suggestion of underage uh, sex and this person being uh, held accountable to law, those elements are far less 
heavily, you know, pushed in the in in our faces, and it's more just about the kind of moral norms of uh, the time, possibly as much. I don't know if that maybe says something more about uh, you know twenty first century uh, culture or or whatever. But I felt it was slightly more tastefully done, um, and it was more about the fact that he had, which kind of makes the film less problematic because mm-hmm. it's about. The, there is almost a justification for some element of um you know him feeling wronged um or sorry them feeling wronged because he has this kind of misogynistic character who's quite happy to take from them and quite happy to yeah. be like a uh, the big man <laughs> and then he starts schooling them like little girls as soon as you know, as as soon as that's as soon as that's over. So in the morning, he's like, right, okay, you need to get out of my house now, and blah blah blah. So this this is far less problematic than Knock Knock because Knock Knock doesn't have that justification mm-hmm. for them. It kind of yeah. tries to set things up there, and I mean, if if it turns round that perhaps he had abused somebody and they had found out about like and knock knock if Evan had abused somebody and they had found out about it or if there was some justification or some thread of his behaviour that kind of led to that then it would be more justifiable and you could kind of understand it and the, the, the moral ambiguities wouldn't be quite so, so troubling whereas in Death Game you do get just that wee bit more justification and there's far less emphasis on uh, them being underage it's more about that he has wronged them uh, in a number of different ways, which are mm-hmm. far more justifiable mm-hmm. and far, you know, leads to a better film. I think. I, I don't think this is there's much between the two films in terms of quality, um, but I do still think that's slightly less concerning and sort of potentially even a slightly more mature way of looking at things. Duncan, um, what was your view on this? I heard you kind of. Yeah, I can, I'm pretty much there with you on this one. Um, the George Manning character isn't put forward in this film to be a likeable character, per se, whereas I feel that in Knock Knock, they almost try to kind of put this idea over that we really should be feeling sorry for Keanu Reeves all the way through it. Yep. Um, so I think that's what works to the credit of Death Game. Um, and like you say, kind of kind of gives you at least something to get over on the movie so you can kind of see where it's rolling without the this kind of idea of, oh, I don't know if it should be going there. Um, I, I love the idea that this movie like genuinely tried to put forward the case that is, you know, it's based on real events. And I know a lot of horror movies do it, especially in the 70s. But, you know, that's just a ludicrous idea. It's just like completely ludicrous. Um, I think there are some interesting aspects about it. I, I, I do think there is a reason that a movie like this exists in the 70s and a reason why a movie like Knock Knock the way it is shouldn't really exist in 2015 because because things have moved on and cinema has moved on um, and like you said that you can make a movie which kind of covers um, more kind of gender politics and sexual violence and a movie like Hard Candy which you know delivers a really important message in a quite terrifying way 
but at the same time yeah. is very maturely handled and Knock Knock doesn't have that. Death Game kind of gets away with it because of the time period it's released in. Um, and it's, is, it, is it one of the worst ones? Well, no, when you consider other movies that were coming out about this time, like I Spit in Your Grave, for example, um, or Miss 45, there's, you know, there's, there's other ones that handle more difficult subject matter in terms of, you know, sexual assault, sexual violence, um, and the ramifications of it. I think Death Game is a better movie, but I would I would probably be with Roscoe on this one. I don't think it's a great movie, and I know it does have quite a bit of reverence um, out there. I, I don't necessarily think it's fully deserved. It's quite interesting with some of it um, and some of the directions it goes, but ultimately it's a bit of kind of grindhouse exploitation yep. it's titillation and yeah. absolutely i mean that's yeah. the, the problem another problem with uh, knock knock is that it's it's as it short in a way that it's supposed to be titillating that's supposed to you know it's supposed to arouse you it's supposed mm-hmm. to you know have a uh, you know and that is incredibly problematic given the um, given the, the the content at times and and particularly certain elements of it, just disgusting. And should never have, you know. The the certain elements that you know just actually make you angry if you sit and think about them for any length of time. Um, Eli Roth writing uh, makes me uh, quite angry. <laughs> uh, but then my comments on Eli Roth writing then made other people angry on Facebook. But. See, to be honest, I, I don't care if we're all girls too, lefty and liberal and everything. I, I'm i just getting really bored of Eli Roth using gay and retarded yeah. in, like, every film. And it got to the point where I, I just put in on Google, like, just, just the scripts for Hostel, Cabin Fever, Not Not, and Green Inferno. And between them, there's roommates, huh? That is gay fucking gay, you're gay, it was retarded, dude. Because they're gay, don't be a fucking retard. Don't be gay. Let's get a cabin. So gay. Uh-huh. It was the gayest thing ever. Right, okay, so, yep. And I mean, that's... Again, I mean, devil's advocate kind of thing, the, the, the example that you're referring to. I don't know, do you want to just move on to... Green Inferno just now? We could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just a single advert show. Yep. So the, the, <laughs> so the, the, that advert will be for T. Stairs. That's it, exactly. <laughs> the show absolutely everyone is calling, which Gil just said. Um, <laughs> um, we'll no longer mention Keanu Reeves because what sort of bell end says bodacious. <laughs> So yes, um, and you're stuck with it. <laughs> Three years on, you're stuck with it. Um, yeah. Well, you, you just picked the name Roscoe. It'll be fine. <laughs> Those three people on SoundCloud won't care. Yeah. So there we go. Um, <laughs> now the thousands of people. The thousands. One thousand. Thousands of thousands. Right. That was my rock impression. I don't know if you liked it. So yeah. The what we were talking about there was obviously the, the the what you were referring to in terms of what we watched. Gil was a line that Casey, uh, one of the characters in Grind in um, the Green Inferno delivers, um, where she refers to something as being gay as as a derogatory 
uh, derogatory term. Wheelchair refers to something as being retarded. Again, and activism uh-huh. is so fucking gay. Uh, so these things in, in very derogatory terms. But to uh, <laughs> what I, what I was going to say was, I mean, the the devil's advocate. This character is not someone who you're supposed to particularly feel empathy for. Mm-hmm. So there's something wrong with you if you can empathize. It's with a character no, in the like, that... And I know that the character is very cartoony, and I mean that's that goes without saying for all of the characters in this film. Um all the characters are very cartoony and but it, the the point remains Eli Roth is in this film, I feel, fixing his sights at a very specific thing and a spe- yeah. very specific target. Um and again very questionable in terms of whether it's a worthwhile target that he's actually shooting at. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's he in the interviews has mentioned that he's talking about slacktivism and people who are keyboard warriors and people who are um, you know involved in campus politics and so on, but aren't really are, are only interested in it for so long, um, mm-hmm. and then move on and do other things and blah blah. blah. Um, and- so keyboard warriors annoy Eli Ross so much. That he sat down at his keyboard and wrote a film about him. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's... Who's the dick now, Eli? Who's the dick now? But you know what I mean. It's that the 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 point is that he's he's got his sights quite squarely set at these kind of student cliches, um, and and it is a very cartoonish image of cam- campus life. And obviously, you can see elements of you know things that you recognise from from any time that you've been around universities or been at universities, you you will recognise elements of it. But this is not supposed to be a, a comedy film. It's supposed to be, a, mm-hmm. a, again, a serious film. So again, the tone is... Well, they're social sciences students or something, aren't they? By, like, just uh-huh, it's, based I'm... on what they're... What... It appears. It appears that the, it, the, they are, well, I would suggest anthropology students because they're going to a thing about other cultures and um, FGM. Um, so possibly, ah, uh-huh, so possibly something in that kind of that kind of region. Social sciences, anthropology, something in that kind of kind of region. Anyway, um, would you would you like the synopsis in a trailer esque voice? Yes. A group of student activists travels to the Amazon to save the rainforest and soon discover that they are not alone and that no good deed goes unpunished. I I did it as a question there at the end to make it sexy. So, so no good deed goes unpunished. That's the that's the lesson that we're to take away from the Green Inferno. <laughs> it seems seems to be the is it is maybe Eli Roth just writing that film about himself? Or he's going, All the good deeds I've done. I told people not to go to cabins. I told people not to go to hostels. How many other places do I have to tell people not to go? <laughs> Fucking forests where there shouldn't be anyone. <laughs> In a world where Eli Roth doesn't want you to go anywhere. The sequel to Hostel and Cabin Fever comes Mommy's House. So- 
that'll, that'll be one where there's an actual mummy. Uh-huh. Uh, he goes to see his mum, and there's like there's an actual mummy there. Yes. At, at the end of the film, he's cut himself, and it goes, I've got a bandage. <laughs> oh, I've broken my character. <laughs> I've lost all my notes. <laughs> What's <laughs> my place now? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. In a world, <laughs> Roscoe has lost his notes. <laughs> Can he recapture them? Or has it all just gone to oh, shit? Oh, yes, there we go. So the lead character is called Justine, and she's played by Lorenza Izzo. Now, is this... This is Justine, one letter away from justice. Oh, there we go. I like it. In a world right. where Eli Roth is such a fucking hack. Right, keep, keep, right. keep the swales to a minimum, please. Sorry. My mum listens to this. <laughs> um, so Lorenzo Izzo, is that, I, I, was it you that told me, Gil, that this is his partner? That is his, uh, his wife, yes. And she, she was also the He's... star of One Knock Knock. She was also yeah. the star of Knock Knock, yes. And the, you know how she says, 43, you're very buff for 43, <laughs> oh. to Mr. Bodacious. Yeah. Well, uh, I think Eli Roth is 43. He's 43. And, yeah. <laughs> there we go. And she's 26. Oh, oh, really? Is he, oh, it's so, 43. Yeah. Oh, that is so he's embarrassing. 40, oh, yeah. he, he's 43 and she's 27. Oh, God. You think you think maybe he made knock knock because he didn't know how to tell his wife he wanted a threesome? <laughs> <laughs> well, she knows now. Maybe he's just never seen her naked. <laughs> so, tell you what, I'll put you in a couple of films. Right. So again, as as we mentioned, it's quite the the setup is essentially we see Justine and her friend Casey. Justine's our main character. Uh, our best friend Casey, who she hangs out with and lives with. We get to see them um, discussing. It's a Sunday morning, and there are some uh, activists who are protesting. Um, the they're protesting in favour of health insurance for the janitors who work at the university, and they are led by this charismatic character called Alejandro. Um, Alejandro. The Casey uh, says that he looks uh, creepy and that creepy and charismatic tend to go hand in hand. Um, so we see them and there Casey is playing this kind of quite uh, comedic character who is, uh, you know, the, 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 they're on, basically the activists are on hunger strike to try to uh, in favour of these, this health insurance uh, policy going through at the university and Casey is taunting them with a bagel and uh, you know trying to uh, some funny elements there but again it's very threadbare in terms of how the characters are set up um, the, the name of the group that they're involved with for example is ACT and their slogan is don't think ACT so again it's it's very much um, about this kind of non-questioning student culture, and I mean, to be honest, there's there's something you know something interesting in terms of the stuff that's been happening in the news recently. Um, everyone's no doubt read about the no platforming and the elements of you know safe 
you know, the debates that safe in safe spaces mm-hmm. and so on encompasses, which, I mean, to be fair, in a lot of ways, I'm broadly supportive of. Um, when you actually read yeah. what they are, it's, it's quite a, you know, relatively sensible thing. And in a university context, safe space means um, it's to do with debates and it's to do with the way that debates are organised. So that's what, what it specifically relates to. Um, I, I just know the other ones. So it's so. basically where someone feels that they are being, uh, where, where they feel that they're, um, that someone's actions are harmful or threatening or in any way kind of promoting a negative, envir- a negative kind of environment to the discussion, they can raise their hand and put a complaint in against mm-hmm. the person to, and then that usually in, in most of the way these ways these are set up triggers a vote um as to whether the person should be ejected from the plate from the, the venue or not. And I mean, to be fair, I, I do think there's some value in that where we are talking about quite, you know, where where you've got very bigoted views. I can understand why uh, there's a place for that. But at the same time, I think there's a question about democracy and a question about universities being a place where um, you, echo chambers. You know, yeah, exactly. And that's the pro. That is kind of the problem is that it can can kind of become. It's like if you've got Twitter and you start muting everyone who's got <laughs> a who's got a contradictory opinion, then you're just going to believe that literally everyone agrees with you and that mm-hmm. you yeah. are definitely spot on and all your you views. You are awesome. Uh-huh. Exactly. Everything you believe is correct <laughs> and everyone else is wrong. Uh-huh. You are not wearing hockey pants. So again, I think I think some things like that are a good idea in, pract- in principle, but in practice tend to be ramped up. And I think some of the stuff that Eli Roth is critiquing there kind of comes through in his criticisms of activism, and it's this kind of uh, Alejandro, for example, she criticizes the methods that Alejandro are, is using um, to uh, defend the uh, Yahes people. Um, and as soon as she does that, she is basically you know, blacklisted and sent away and told basically don't come back to any meetings because you're obviously, you're, you're immature and uh, we, don't, we don't want you in this group. Um, but he flies past that so quickly that it really doesn't matter. But I think that's what, that's what the point is that he's trying to make, I think, is that there's, there's very much a, a immediately trying not to question Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying not to question, and I mean, what the the kind of subtext of this also is that uh, the character, uh, Justine's character, is the daughter of a diplomat or the daughter of a lawyer at the the UN, and Alejandro is aware of that, and so there's there's motives there that are at play even from the start that need to be. Kind is it of just me that thought that was introduced clumsily? To be honest, yeah, uh-huh. the whole mm-hmm. thing was interesting. Uh-huh. yeah. What do you think, Duncan? Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I'm yammering away for yonks here. No, no, I think I think you're right. I think in principle, the first forty-five minutes of this movie has a has a message which is quite interesting. Um, I just don't think, once again, same as not knock. There's a there's a really interesting message behind all that. It's just it's put in the hands of someone that doesn't have the tact. To really give enough attention, you know, give enough detail or enough attention. With it, it always kind of feels like his points have got 
you know, they've been laminated. So you, the, the, you just... But it's not his message. Yeah, you just slide right off them. You know, it's its really weird. Uh, like, a lot of what he sets up in the movie, in terms of... And I, I'm, I, I genuinely thought when I when I had read the synopsis of the movie before seeing it, that the idea of him tackling kind of like this... This kind of activism, which, you know, when we've grown up with, you know, movements, every other, especially when this movie came out, we were going from, you know, it was the... It was Co- the 90, 20, 12 and all that. Yeah, the 99% movement and all the rest and all these things that it was like, every other month there was something that everyone was jumping on and signing up to and all the rest. And then you would commit, what, maybe a, a week of your life posting things or whatever, mostly on your computer and then... It's whatever the next thing was. And that fundamentally is a really interesting message. Absolutely. As the backdrop to this movie, very similar to, you know, when we look at the the ideas behind a movie like Cannibal Holocaust and this this idea of, you know, kind of staged documentarians um, going to, to, to set up things to basically further their careers as opposed to delivering the real message. So, I, I mean, that, that, that in itself is really interesting. I just don't think Eli Roth has the tools and, you know, to, to put that across in a way where it feels satisfying. It always just feels like he's just about to give you something which is going to which is really going to make you go, fuck's sake, I can't believe you put that in. And, but he doesn't give you it. He hints at it so much, yeah. but can't deliver. Um, and it's frustrating as a viewer, especially, like this movie, like, I'll, I'll be honest, when I watched this movie for the first time, I had so low expectations. And 40 minutes into this movie, my expectations had peaked up enough that I genuinely thought that I may have to eat my shoe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, and, and eat some humble pie and accept that Eli Roth had in him to to make a, a modern cannibal movie which, you know, had the teeth, so to speak, um, to be relevant. And from about the 40-minute mark into this movie, right to the very end, it is basically a series of unfortunate events, which he's masterminded, you know, <laughs> all the way through. Eli Roth's series of unfortunate events. You were joking events. earlier on about his dialogue. That, that He's like he's he is a he's a forty three year old man who is writing dialogue for for university students who apparently can't see any descriptive word which has more than one syllable in it. He is the equivalent of Joey Tribbiani friends <laughs> trying to play a teenager. Sup, dude? What's up with the black dude? Yeah. Up? that's you know it's it's really and I don't know who he's pandering to. I don't know what what he thinks horror fans are like. If that's what he puts in these movies, like we, we can't follow a story about kind of social activism because that might be too much for us. So we'll just get a really superficial overview of it and then we'll move on to something else. This is obviously very heavily influenced by Cannibal Holocaust. The title is it's from, Holocaust. from Cannibal Holocaust and obviously Green Inferno. Um, is referenced in, in the movie and, and made reference to um I think that's one of the titles of one of the, the films within the film. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it? it goes um the, the first half of the movie is more influenced by Cannibal Holocaust and the second half of the movie is more influenced by Cannibal Ferox, funnily enough. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah if you yeah. see even if you see how the movie the movie ends is basically like as it's not. It's not even just a, an homage. He rips the ending off Cannibal uh, Ferox 
for, for, the, yeah, for the end sequence where she is speaking to the the officials. The yeah, uh, back in America. In this, it's the sister. Yeah. Where she makes a statement saying that they're they're not they're, there was no cannibals down there. That's exactly how Ferox finishes. So it's it's funny that it goes that way. He goes from the the more terrifying, more biting movie, and then in the middle it goes for the cheap knockoff version for all the the stuff. Do you think he was trying to figure out which one to rip off and went, I'll take elements from both and no. At, at the end of the movie, when the credits play, he lists a like a list of about twelve cannibal movies, which are what he says are basically a, a shopping list of movies that you really need to watch to appreciate the Green Inferno. He doesn't write appreciate, but the, these are the movies that influenced him. And it is, it's like the biggest names in it from, you know, Prisoners of the Cannibal Gods to Man of Deep River, right through to Cannibal Ferox um, and Cannibal Holocaust. So he does mention all these movies. Um, that Once again, this is a subject that he is a big, like he loves Diodato. Diodato is his, like his favourite director. And I get the love, you know, I, I understand that he loves it, but I don't think, once again, I don't think he necessarily has the tools in order to make <laughs> a relevant, you know, kind of modern telling of this without ultimately kind of descending into like a frat boy. It's like, it is, it's basically the frat boy remake of, of these two. It's like a bastardised version of the two movies. And it's... I mean, I know we're still we're, we've not even got to the jungle yet, but um, <laughs> you should have called it forest. You know what I mean? It's, 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 do you not know, like just gen- genuinely? Because I know that both of you um, have the same kind of and reverence is a strange word to use, but Cannibal Holocaust, I, I consider a very important movie. Um, regardless where your politics lie on animal cruelty, and I'm very much against it, I, I see it as a very important piece of cinema. And I'm looking at that movie, which is it's over 30 years old now. I'm looking at The Green Inferno, and I genuinely don't think that even in five years' time, The Green Inferno will hold to the people that like it the same sort of weight or importance as a movie like Cannibal Holocaust does 30-odd years. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've, I've put across on this show um, in the past that probably Cannibal Holocaust is probably in the top five um, and set probably the the kind of upper part of the top five of my horror films, um, because for me the the that's probably why I was so annoyed by this film is because Cannibal Holocaust on so many levels is a a fantastic piece of work, and although it's you know although it's it's maybe a little bit dated in some elements, the the key elements are fantastic. The key yeah. idea and the central premise behind it is astonishingly well conceived and developed. Um, you know, you've got you know, you've got a film within a film, you've got real death mixing with um mixing with uh, false, you know, fake death to try and blur the lines. It's got things about the the listener be the the viewer being complicit in this. Mm-hmm. It's got elements of um, just so many different things that that make it a, a really interesting film. And you know the 
it's got questions about what film is, what film hopes to achieve, what documentaries hope to achieve, and it's just and the responsibilities, yeah, and absolutely, and the responsibilities. So many different things, and this just seems like he's went. It's set in a jungle. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan Fraser's coming at the end. So yeah, because yeah. I. I love Cannibal Holocaust, and I would I would tell anyone to watch Cannibal Holocaust, but I now don't buy mini cheddars because they use palm oil to make them, mm-hmm. and I don't see there being any conflict of interest there because you know I can't travel back to the nineteen seventies and tell Diodato, you know, this animal cruelty will be horrific uh-huh. in the future because it. It was horrific then as well. I mean, the, there were people that thought that the people in that film had actually been murdered yeah. in their trials and everything about it. It's Cannibal Holocaust is an incredibly important film it, for so many different reasons, but I still I don't justify any of the things that happened to the animals in it. The other thing that I was going to say was um, Ruggiero Diodato, more than anyone... Uh, feels a great deal of moral responsibility yeah. for that now, and has actually uh, the the most recent version, which well, one of the most recent versions, which came out on Shameless a few years ago, um, eighteen seconds or something. Well, he cut he he cut out all of the animal cruelty, so you mm-hmm. can actually you could there's a there's a special director's edit that uh, that that removes. All of the animal cruelty uh, and anything that's kind of visible from from that uh, only leaves the the implication of that, and uh, you know, it's I think there's there's some value in that. You can get that, you know, that version also has the the most complete cut available, um, so you can see both sides of the the coin depending mm-hmm. on what your where your preferences lie. And I think it's the kind of film where there is great value to it, and. Um, my lovely fiance actually bought me the um, bought me the soundtrack oh, uh, for my birthday, so that was rather lovely on the uh, delicious blood red vinyl. So that's do, 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 that's it. Do, 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 do. <laughs> um, that's kind of like that. We we used to sing that to each <laughs> other, and now you're going to be singing it to her. I know that's that. Um, so yes, uh, in terms of so that. Again, getting back to it, we, is is there anything plot wise that you would want to discuss, or do you, do you feel we've kind of more or less covered the ground with it? I think the the ridiculousness of the plot, to be honest, I think. Yeah, well, the thing is, basically, as a way to 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 kind of get them in the jungle, which is what Eli Roth wants to do the second this fucking movie starts. <laughs> he just yeah. can't can't wait to get them surrounded by trees. Like basically, they they go out. The whole plan is to stop the deforestation of of this particular area in the rainforest, and you know it, it drags them all out there. But what we don't know, and there's a a couple of twists to the story, not great twists, but there are a couple of twists to the story where basically he gets them out there with with cameras once again using modern technology. He loves that, um, and you know we get in this position where there's a standoff, and. The all all Alejandro wants is basically the theme that's attached to 
to being involved with this. He's not really all that interested in the, the plight of the rainforest, but to get famous off the back of what he's done. And on the journey back for their celebration, because he uses um, Justine's character, like you said earlier on, her mother works for the UN, I think it is. And um, it, he uses that as a, a pawn for when the, 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 the people that are working on site, the security, are going to inflict violence. And on their way back, their plane crashes. They're still dressed up in um, kind of workers' uniforms. Uh, and this is a justification for the, the tribe getting them. That's interesting because I was not... From the trailers, Duncan, I thought that was the implication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't feel that was necessarily hammered home, and I didn't know no. whether that was the case or not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that you've made that point. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it's only on the, really on the second watch um, that, that I, I kind of was more aware of that, but you're right, the trailer definitely hints it as this is the justification. It's not really handled all that well, and then they're they're basically taken back to the camp with the with this, with this tribe who then proceed to eat them. And I mean, it's at first, once again, I think that the problem, and you've you, you've kind of touched on it again, Roscoe, is that this idea of there's a he really really struggles with tone in this movie. I kind of get the feeling what he wanted to do was make a, a kind of cannibal horror comedy movie, but really couldn't commit to that um, because there are so many scenes which are just completely fucking ludicrous. Um, and you think that's why the fat guy is called Jonah? <laughs> <laughs> like that totally stuck out to me. It's like, oh, they're going to eat the fat guy. Oh, his name's Jonah. Jonah, yeah. It's the the way the way it goes from the point of, and I mean, I I will say this: uh, the the kind of sequence where Jonah starts to get like his eyes removed and all the rest. Like the practical effects are not terrible, actually. Like when it first started happening. I was kind of taken back because I wasn't expecting it to be as visceral there. But he then goes out his way. Every time something horrific happens in this movie, within two minutes, he puts the most base-level toilet humour, literally, in this movie, which diffuses any tension, any atmosphere, and any impact to the scene that happened before it. It does it all the way through this movie. And I don't know why... Because for someone who's a student of Cannibal Holocaust, like he claims he is, I don't know why you would want to lessen the impact of the scenes, which basically are you know your bread and butter in a movie like this, by putting in which like the the sense of humour in this movie coming from a man his age is is quite ridiculous, like really to the point where it's cringeworthy, and it, just when you think you've seen the most ludicrous thing in this movie, like a woman having like bowel problems or a guy masturbating after he's seen a woman slit her throat. Um, you then get a scene where someone utters the line, oh, they've got the munchies. And oh, uh-huh, yeah. The, that, that was, oh, so you've got a, a fat guy, a stoner, uh, like sleazy jokes. You've got a tattooed goth girl. Yeah. Yeah, it, just, it becomes it becomes that level. Where, Sounds like a Rob Zombie trailer. <laughs> when, when you when that bit happens, you kind of realise that any any depths you kind of thought this movie might might hit in terms of uh, like r- real storytelling or real impact are never going to be there 
and ultimately all you're going to be left with is this kind of hollow shell, this pretender almost, um, which in a lot of respects kind of sums up Eli Roth quite well. Um, you know, th- this guy who, who puts forward a, a movie that has a line like that in it, and you just got to wonder what was he actually wanting to do with this movie? If it's if it's to get people to watch the 12 movies that he lists in the credits at the end, this movie doesn't do that at all. Um, actually, that, that list of 12 movies, and some of those movies on it are pretty fucking bad. Um, if anything, reading that list of movies just made me remember how good those movies were in comparison to The Green Inferno. It made me kind of wish that I'd spent my time watching them. It's like the end of old UK sitcoms where they would have the characters who would say, you have been watching. Yeah. It should say, you should have been watching. It's, I, I, I don't... Like, like, from your point of view, see when the cannibalism kicks in? Uh-huh. Like, d- d- w- d- did you feel yourself at that point going, right, well, the business is now picked up? Um, or- no, I actually felt the exact opposite. Yeah. I, I felt like... Oh, I remember that time that Sting was on Wogan in the 80s <laughs> with that guy with a plate in his lip yeah. and like living for all these years with the knowledge that cannibalism is really not that much of a thing, especially not in the Amazon. And this idea of hidden tribes, like I've watched enough things about the Amazon to know that these, I mean, <laughs> let's face it, they they're going all the way down there and they're talking, oh, there's these these people that have never been seen. They turn up within two minutes. Yeah, yeah there's so, a lot of them as well. There's, a, there's an interesting, um, I was just going to read a, a kind of short extract, if you don't mind, from the Amazon Watch website who made a comment about the film um, and they have basically said, for almost two decades, Amazon Watch has partnered with indigenous people across the Amazon basin to advance their rights and defend defend the rainforest from destructive projects. As such, Amazon Watch is deeply troubled by the overtly racist messaging in Eli Ross' film, The Green Inferno. Um, So we stand behind the Peruvian indigenous organisations that have so far denounced The Green Inferno as racist, promoting retrograde stereotypes of indigenous people as savages that enable policies detrimental to the survival of isolated Amazonian indigenous peoples. Um, And there's also an interesting thing that says isolated indigenous peoples do indeed exist in the Amazon. Survival International estimates 15 distinct peoples live in the rainforests of Peru alone. Far from posing a threat to outsiders, however, many isolated indigenous peoples are at risk are at imminent risk from incursions into their territories by oil companies, mm-hmm. loggers, drug traffickers, evangelicals and tourists. Contact with outsiders brings deadly diseases and sometimes violence associated with criminal attempts to occupy their land. So, I mean, that is kind of some of the stuff that, that is being brought up um, in the film. You know, in fairness, some of that is touched on. But again, at the same time, it is very much... Uh, a westernized view um, of of the world, and it's a, a very simplistic view of the world. Um, so again, I can understand why. And I mean, those say those exact same criticisms apply to Cannibal Holocaust. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, it's uh, you know, it's 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 of interest. Because again, we're talking about we've, we've spoke about knock knock, and we've also spoken about. Um, death game and now we're talking about 
Hannibal Holocaust and uh, Green Inferno, and I think we've moved on from that now. In ter- as a mm-hmm. society, we've moved as a world, we've moved on in terms of how we view uh, the 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 world, and I think we've kind of grown to understand. You know the the cultures of people that are you know different from ourselves in a much better way, and we've kind of and a lot of positive uh, things have come out of that. But I think that films like this don't help. And as much as, yeah. as much as the, these things these things are fun, and I was looking forward to it in a lot of ways um, because I knew I was hoping it would be good. I was hoping it would be a because no, who's made a good cannibal film recently? Yeah. There, there really hasn't been one, but maybe there is a reason there hasn't been yeah, one. exactly. And that's because since Cannibal Holocaust was made, I mean, Cannibal Holocaust isn't a cannibal film. Cannibal Holocaust is a film about exploitation by yeah. the media. And that's the problem, is that Eli Roth has taken the completely outrageous plot of Cannibal Holocaust yep. that wasn't about cannibals, and he's made it about cannibals. Because I... I don't know if you, you probably both just unfollowed me at this point the other night, but as I was watching it, I was kind of Facebooking my thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I mean, the film is full of so many ridiculous things. Like even just at, at the start of the film, he's even, he's callous about eating disorders. Because that character, Casey, suggests that the girls that are hunger-striking are just doing it to cover the fact they're anorexic. And you're like, well, that doesn't even belong in this day and age. Because that's that's a thing that is horrible and affects millions of people across the world. And you've got this just using things as throwaway lines but that's the problem is that everything is a throwaway line and that's Eli Ross films is the throwaway this is why we can't be on podcast networks folks <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're independent but I mean like also I mean we've, we've spoken about how it's a commentary on activism it starts off with them being activists to try and help the janitors. The janitors get their health insurance. Like 10 minutes into the film, mm-hmm. the activism has been shown to work. Mm-hmm. And Eli Roth is... I mean, he wrote it. He's writing a film about how activism is something that people just dip in and out of and, well, does it really even work? And the first example of activism that he sticks in this film, he he then goes, well, that works. The janitors get their health insurance. It's like the, the exposition at the start of this film for him trying to set up this thing that he's trying to say. By the end of the film, he has said nothing of any worth at all. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a very well written movie and like you said there's a reason that there's not been a cannibal movie made in in quite some time and funnily enough I've I, I, I have spoken to my my colleague on my show who is a fairly The Baz. Yeah the Baz who's fairly new to horror as in the last couple of years and watched Cannibal Holocaust just over a year ago. Um and he watched this and he was like really excited to see The Green Inferno because he's found that he relates more to modern retelling of, of kind of horror stories and remakes and stuff like that than I do. 
he's he's not kind of he's not ingrained with that, that that kind of sensibility yet, which he will eventually end up with. Um, but the funny thing about it. From his point of view, and I think he makes a, a, a quite an interesting point, which I think we're all kind of touched on here, is that yeah, no one has made a cannibal movie for a long time, and after the Green Inferno, I don't think anyone will again. And I think even the the post credit sequence in this movie, which kind of hints at possibly a sequel, for some reason, <laughs> you know what I mean, as if we're going to go back to the jungle sometime soon, and I, I genuinely don't know once again why that's in this movie at all. It, it just seems like did he think that making this movie in a kind of hostile-esque sort of fashion is going to birth a new series of movies that are going to... I just don't I, I don't see what, what he's doing. And I think that sums up the whole movie. I think on paper, I think it's, it's great to have a love for like movies in general. And if you've got a particular subgenre of movies that you like or a particular director, yes, by all means, you know, dedicate your time to to making people aware of that. If the Green Inferno is his love letter to those movies and his intention to get horror fans who have you know who have not travelled that that far back to the you know the the sixties, seventies, and eighties of Italian horror cinema and the exploitative kind of cannibal subgenre, the Green Inferno is not going to do it. It's not going to do it at all because it doesn't. But it also shows he wasn't paying attention. It, it, he's taking the wrong things away from the movies, and it's it's weird because I've heard him talk. I've you know I've seen interviews and I've heard him talk very eloquently and you know very intellectually about things like Cannibal Holocaust or you know like early seventies Jalo movies like the work of like Sergio Martino, and he, he he gets the movies. He get he really does get the movies. He gets the message there. I just don't think he can film it. I don't think he has in him. Yeah. He doesn't have. He's not capable of making a mature horror movie at all. He's stuck. He's not Astron Six. He's not. He's, <laughs> he just. He doesn't have. He doesn't have it in him. And all you get is a lot of um, kind of super superficial ideas with no depth, with no substance. And I walk away from the Green Inferno with the same impression that I walked away with from Knock Knock. It shot well. That's it. <laughs> Although in Knock Knock, you do actually see the camera crew quite a few times because they did insist on shooting towards windows. I didn't notice whilst that. the inside of the room's lit. Yeah, there's a couple of times where I was... Even the... Like, uh, Roscoe was commenting on the the big... The great panning shot earlier on. Uh, during that great panning shot, you do see the camera. Huh? See, I didn't know that. I was going to say there's also a bit in Knock Knock where I'm sure you can see a knife wound. Before he gets stabbed. Really? I think so, yeah. <laughs> I'm fairly sure, yeah. But he is John Wick, so it could be an old <laughs> yeah, knife wound. I'm fairly sure, um, because I'd, I'd sent you a thing about that when I was watching it, Gil. Um, yep. So, yeah. But you didn't, you didn't send a time no, code? No, I, I need to double check, <laughs> but there we go. Um, you don't need to double check, because that means you have to watch Knock Knock again. Do right. not double check. Okay, guys. Um, so we'll have a we'll uh, just probably wrap up the show there. Um, Duncan, thank you very much indeed for joining us. It's been absolutely excellent to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me yeah. on. I I have missed you guys ridiculous amounts. I'm so glad that you're back doing the podcast. Oh, we've missed you too. <laughs> but thank you very much for inviting me on. I've not had a chance to talk about 
these movies at all, which is quite strange. They're the sort of movies that when you see them, you want to talk about them. Um, and I've not managed to find an outlet, even though I have my own show, I've not managed to do that. So it's been great charities about them. And thank you again for inviting me on. Excellent, man. Have you got any recommendations for us since we've been a little bit slack? I, I think you've I think you've seen some of the the really good ones. I, I would highly recommend Bone Tomahawk. That was my that was one of my favourite movies last year. Um, and it kind of just well, there you go. There was two cannibal movies that came out in twenty fifteen, and um, the one that's not not designed to be a cannibal movie, which is Bone Tomahawk, is the better movie. I've, I've seen Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, did you like uh, it? I was very, very disappointed because I was expecting a Mike Patton sex tape. <laughs> There's a joke for the Epicac fans. But that's that was that was one of my my favourites from last year. There's been there's been like there's there's loads out there. Um, actually, last year I thought was like a once again a pretty strong year for kind of indie horror. Um. Bone Tomahawk definitely being like things like the editor, the Astron Six movie, the editor was phenomenal. Um, and that's we one we're going to look up pretty soon, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's excellent. It's really, really good, and it's got our buddy Tristan Risk. Also, they have a new web series starting, Divorced Dad, which I'm sure we have all watched the trailer for. Have you seen this, Duncan? Yeah, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. If people haven't got a chance to look at that, if you go into Facebook and you search for Divorced Dad, um, it's on there, and it's uh, a lot of the guys that have been involved with the Astron Six uh, productions um, that that are involved in it. Um, looks, I don't know if it's the full team or not, but it's it looks absolutely fantastic. And the premise is, it's uh, or uh, what, what a, <laughs> don't, even, don't even tell them just let yeah, them watch, yeah, just, don't... Just watch it. The, pre- the premise is a kind of a cable TV show about divorced dad and it's a kind of dark comedy um, <laughs> but there's some slightly more interesting elements there for fans yeah. of Father's Day Manborg um, Biocop Cool Guys Laser Ghosts to Return to Laser Cove oh yeah it's like as much as I love uh what's his name from uh It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that plays Charlie. Oh yeah. Don't you just think that so many of those roles should be going to Matthew Kennedy? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So guys, thank you very much once again for listening. Um you as ever can contact us on Twitter. Uh, I myself am at Bodacious Horror. My dear friend Gil is uh, digital chaos. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> I, I like Gil Rogatansky. And Duncan McLeish, of course, is the chaos master. Yeah, it's at visual under, underscore chaos with a oh, key. Visual, not digital. Uh, see, did, you have a, did you have a chaos I, pad, Duncan? Or that's a... where it comes from, yeah. Uh, back, in the, back in the days when I was in a band, um, I did... Uh, you don't use it. I did not sold it years ago. <laughs> How awesome would a podcast be where both people were just sitting using chaos pads? <laughs> yeah, I have a, I have a chaos pad that um, I use for whooping. Yeah, so that's uh, it's very useful for that. That's a great. great that's great another name for being yeah, a werewolf. Well, speaking about werewolves, you guys, uh, I don't know if you you must be aware that your wolf cop is the sequel's finished shooting, so it's. A wrap up I was going to say that uh, thanks to us, 
you know, Wolf Cop did did actually mm-hmm. happen. But you know, we it, it really was it was just that one interview <laughs> we did with Lil Dean and then that film got made because they were like, Well, if those guys like it and the second one, yep. And it's hopefully gonna be a trilogy. Sadly, I haven't read any of the related comics or anything, but that's because, well, they didn't appreciate us enough to send them. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Okay, guys, uh, so on that note, thank you very much indeed for listening. Um, as ever, you can find us on Facebook also. Um, do a search for Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast on Facebook and you will find us. We are on iTunes, Stitcher and RSS feed. Um, and next week, we will be back to discuss well just now it's kind of unwritten but one suggestion was post-apocalyptic stuff um, so that could be yeah I was thinking the next, next show maybe uh, a boy mm-hmm. and his dog and maybe Zed for Zachariah or quiet okay, so let's make that happen we're all three what a beautiful idea so guys thank you very much indeed for listening uh, Gil thank you for being here Duncan thank you very much again for being here Um, I've been Mr Roscoe Harold Bacon and we are out of here again please my friends please don't have nightmares bye everybody especially not on your book yay bye bye